Marcy Pusey is a certified rehabilitation counselor and certified trauma and resilience practitioner. She's an international speaker, uh, specifically with TEDx twice now, which is pretty cool. Both of her talks are fascinating. She's a story coach. She's a best-selling author of multiple books for adults and children, including uh, While We Slept, which is a book about how her mother-in-law was murdered in her sleep while she was in the building. It's quite a traumatic story, and we talked a lot about that on, on this episode. We also you know, really dove into many other topics that she's an expert in, and I was able to pick her brain about many things. I didn't really expect the conversation to take the turns it did. I intended originally on interviewing her about you know the publishing industry and how that world works, but I found myself fascinated by some of the psychology that she's an expert in, so we talked a lot about that. If you're interested in that kind of thing, She's such an interesting and insightful person. I really hope that you all gain as much from this as I did. Enjoy. Marcy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. This is so exciting. Awesome, awesome. So um, your intersectionality of your expertise, I find really interesting. Um, you talk about a lot of things very intelligently, and I really enjoyed going through like all your stuff. But some of the things, there, there are two like overarching categories that you mostly seem to be talking about. Uh, and you know, the, the first one is storytelling. Um, yeah. and the implications that that has. And the second one seems to be, broadly speaking, trauma and resilience. Yeah. Um, first of all, do you think that's accurate? And second, yes. I'd love to know how, why those two and how they're connected to you. Yeah, that's great. I do think that's accurate. Um, and I think they've begun to intersect later in life. And so I've only maybe in the last few years had a real understanding about how they go together. Um, my experience with trauma is first having lived traumatic experiences, and most of us have, but just sort of developing coping skills and, and even as a child, just falling into defaults for ways to survive life. And so for me, very young, that was writing. There's a great quote by Flannery O'Connor that I really should just memorize, but I just continually butcher it and make it fit for me. But something to the effect of, I write. It's so funny. I yeah. actually have it written Do down because I was going to ask you about it. Oh my gosh. Do you so, want to just yeah. read it? It's a, uh, yeah, it's, I write because I don't know what I think until yeah. I read what I say. Exactly. And I think from very young, I figured that out, that there would just be a swirl of emotion and thought in my head. But until I could just write it and kind of verbally dump it out, and then read what I had written, um, I couldn't really make anything of it. And so I began to understand myself better by brain dumping and then and then reading what I had written. And I do that today still on Instagram posts, on Facebook posts, like wherever I am, there's, there's this really thoughtful, um, laborious kind of posts that I'll put out there because I'm really trying to process how I'm feeling and what I'm thinking and then hoping that that gives something to the world if it has served me in any way. And so, um, that's some of the trauma piece and where the writing intersected before I realized how much they, they served me and served others. But trauma speaking, we adopted two children out of foster care. We fostered a number of, of children as well. And in that process, I learned how much those kids bring trauma and then from their injury, recreate trauma. And so that caused me to dive headlong into understanding why that is and how to treat it because it was it was boiling over in my home with other kids into my marriage relationship at the time, like all the things. And so I began to write to process what I was experiencing and made those books and put them out there kind of with like a hand up in the air. Hey, anyone else? Um, what helped was that my background professionally is in therapy. I'm a certified trauma and resilience practitioner on top of it. So it's just been a self-study. Um, but the uniqueness of it is that I had the clinical background and the personal experience 
together. And then the storytelling piece was just that's how I process my world. And so most recently, I'm learning how much that does help other people to be able to pour out their own story or realize that it does matter. I know that's kind of in right now, your story matters, but it does. And so now I want to support other people in that same journey. Great. I mean, that's super interesting. I'm curious to know, you know, you mentioned that you've been dealing with the you're helping your adopted children, your foster children through um, through their own traumas that they brought with them. And then you also are a clinician or have a background in, in yeah. clinical therapy. Um, is it different working with patients than with your kids? Oh my gosh, a hundred percent. And that's part of what set me up for failing forward, I'll call it. Not just failing, but failing in a forward movement was that I was so successful in my work with other families that when it came to fostering, I thought, oh, we're going to nail this. Like, this is what I live and breathe. This is, I'm so good at it in the homes of other families. But then bringing kids in, none of my tools worked. None of them. Like, I had an empty toolbox. I had exhausted everything. And that's when I began to, to understand that, that trauma impacts kids in a particular way. And when you're, when you're there caregiver and you're demonstrating love, which we believe will heal them, right? It actually triggers their trauma because the first loves in their life failed them, disappointed them, did not bond or connect with them. So then every time someone tries to do that, it creates this fight or flight in them. Well, as the parent, you're the primary person doing that. And so it's all just upside down parenting. So yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I did try and it didn't work. And that's sort of what, what set me into that. I need to figure this out because my house is chaos and traumatizing and everyone's just trying to keep their heads above water in one of your appearances i want to say it was in your second tedx talk um maybe not though you mentioned that uh stories allow children to gain life experience experience safely yeah i something to that effect yeah um does that tie into this conversation yeah so I've studied the brain a bit. I'm not an expert in the brain, but I've learned enough to know that the way the brain interacts with story is is unique. When it receives information, data, facts, you know, <laughs> PowerPoints in business meetings, you're only retaining a very small percent of what's being given to you because it only lights up a fraction of the brain. But when we receive story, our brains almost entirely light up. Like the whole brain begins to engage the story because its goal is your survival, right? Our brain is trying to keep us alive. That's its primary role in life. And so when it hears story, it's anticipating that it's going to learn something from that story to support you staying alive. And your brain doesn't have the ability to like live in the future or live in the past. So when it's lit up like that with story, it's actually experiencing it in all of the ways personally. And so because of that, we have a real stewardship of the story both that we give and that we receive in whatever platform it is, right? Because when we know that story impacts us in that way, we are getting the life experience without having to go out and do the thing. Our body is responding as if we're living it and it's taking that information in and filing it away for our own survival. So knowing that, again, there's a stewardship element of, okay, what what's the filter for me on the levels of story that I'll take in um, because I know that's impacting my entire body and my my experience, but also the story I put out there. How do I do it to the best of my ability to know I'm supporting the brains and life experience of the people that I'm that I'm hoping to impact with it? It's I absolutely resonate with that too. Like in a in a different way, like in 
less in my childhood, but like, you know, I'd love to read and like novels and watch movies and TV shows. And I remember after finishing like a really dramatic novel, I'll feel like, wow, I can't believe I just went through that. And be like, oh, I actually just read a book. I didn't really do anything, yeah. but it does feel like you've just been that protagonist for, you know, a few hours. So yeah. I really feel what you, yeah. what you're saying there. How did you, how did you know that auth- becoming an author was, was for you? I think it goes back to the beginning just for myself, the way that it supported me um, and the ways that books supported me as a kid. I was for a time on welfare in a single parent home with parents who were separated. Um, They did their best to keep me from knowing how hard things were, but I could feel it, right? Kids just know. So I took on the responsibility of being as little of a burden as possible and contributing as much as I could as possible from little, little, little. Again, no one taught me that. I just, I felt that made me more lovable or worthy of love and affection in some way. And I, I took that on. And the, again, the way that I sort of processed that was through writing. Well, I share in that TED Talk you mentioned um, an experience at a circ- or at the Boys and Girls Club where I joined a persuasive writing contest and whoever won would get tickets to the circus. And so I just, you have to go to the TED talk to hear the whole story. But, but basically I do win that, that essay and I'm able to take my whole family to the circus. And like for us, a big treat in a good month was like we would go to McDonald's. So the circus was like winning the lottery, you know, forget anything bigger than that. And I just felt such a sense of, pride in myself. Again, that lovability, I got some identity stuff trapped in there early on, but uh, that I could support my family and give them such a gift through my pen, through writing words down that that convinced people that I should get these tickets. And I think that just tucked something away in me. Um, but nobody at that time told me you could do that for a living. And, you know, at that time, the only way to make a living out of it was to have an agent and go through a traditional publisher. And that was really, really hard. It's still really hard to do it that way. So I think something early on just kind of tucked in me that, that I could, that I had something special maybe that I could give, but, but nobody told me. So then I, you know, I grew up and became a social worker and a therapist and, and those are great things. Um, but it wasn't until the world began to open up to voices and make more space for us to tell them that I realized, oh, this is something I want to do. And maybe feedback from people throughout the years too on when they would read anything I'd written, like kind of encouraged me too that maybe not just to keep it private, but to put it out into the world and just see, gosh, if one person is impacted, then then whatever my pain is that I'm writing about, the journey I'm writing about, like it's worth it to know that someone else is being impacted positively. Which, which of your books was your first? Yeah, my first... Oh, gosh, it's a little complicated. So I spent a number of years in the traditional publishing industry first, about seven years. And I started there with children's books because I knew somebody publishing for children. And it was so much like, who do you know? Um, So I have a couple of books through a small press that aren't really accessible to the public. Though if you try really hard, they'll sell them to you. But it's a private press. They work with homeschoolers. So those exist. Um, I had two chapters in books for adults for women. Those exist. My very first like solo published book is Reclaiming Hope, Overcoming the Challenges of Parenting Foster and Adoptive Children. I had no plan to write that book, but I had joined a course on how to publish and I needed an idea. And I, so I was like, what's fast? What's easy? What will I find enjoyable? And I was like, man, I know this topic as a, as a, again, therapist, social worker, and as a mama who's been raising these kids. 
And so I wrote it in four weeks. Like I wrote the book in four weeks, got it out there within 90 days and it was a bestseller. And even, <laughs> even just yesterday, I pulled it up to see like how my books were doing and it was selling the most yesterday. Um, it kind of changes what book is doing the best in any given day. But yeah, that was sort of like a, hey, does anyone else think this thing is hard? Like fostering and adopting? Because at the time, if you Googled it, all you would see were like these beautiful blended families running through wildflowers and no representation of any struggle. And so families like mine and like 85, 90% of the families out there thought we were bad people because our family did not look like that. And so my book was really one of the first also to start a conversation around, hey, anyone else think that this isn't always like beautiful wildflower <laughs> scenery? <laughs> um, yeah, so that was the very first one that I got out. That makes sense. You made a distinction there between like the yeah. traditional industry and the self-published industry. I've never written a book. Yeah. I'd love to kind of hear how are those two experiences different? Yeah. I mean, this is my, my experience and perception, but the traditional industry, um, it, what I learned along the way is it's not just about good quality writing. It's about your platform. Like they want to know if you can market yourself. And so if you don't have a really sizable platform where they think you're going to sell your own book, that will impact um, their emotional connection to your theme or to you as a person. So I had a number of agents and publishers along the way love my story or even use my stories in settings as model examples of how to write good quality books, but not choose to represent me or acquire me. Or there was a time where I was picked up by an acquisitions editor, but an entire team had to agree. The marketing team, the editorial team, like the whole, you know, however many people are on that team had to have 100% consensus that they felt my book could succeed according to their standard. And it was like all but one person on the team was convinced it could do amazing. And so they didn't pick it up. So what I learned and what was disappointing for me was I can be an amazing writer, put out good quality stories that they use as examples to other writers. But if I don't fit their cookie cutter shaped, you know, standard for, you know, my platform and the emotional connection I have with them as a human, then it doesn't go anywhere. And I spent seven years playing within that industry, doing all of the things, the conferences, the workshops, you know, submitting, um, yeah, to the editors and agents and just very little to show for it. And I was about to throw in the towel when this opportunity to learn how to independently publish came along. And because I'd been in the traditional industry, I kind of hit it. Um, that was embarrassing for me to join, and but I just was so desperate to see, can I learn the process or should I just go on, you know, being the social worker mama that I've been, <laughs> which is fine, right? There's, there's a place for that too, but it just felt like such a part of my soul experience on this earth to put stories out there. So then, I, like I said, I was able to do it in 90 days when I had the right support and tools. And since then, I've put out 17 more books, like, and counting, because it's addicting <laughs> and it's easy and... And those same books that editors and agents turn down because of whatever, like, I don't have the emotional connection. I don't actually think wild turkeys fly. Like, I had one agent was like, no, wild turkeys don't fly. Actually, I got the turkey back there. There he is, turkeys. <laughs> <laughs> Some kids drew that for me. Um, you know, those are like kid favorites. I get fan mail about books that agents and, you know, acquisition teams are questioning. And so I love now that I've had the opportunity to go around that particular barrier and get my stories out there. Now that's not the path for everyone, right? Like I pay the upfront costs. I have complete creative control, which I love, but I also have clients that I work with who are like, no, will you just do it for me? Can I pay you to do it? Cause I don't want to learn any of that. And so if they can't get in with a traditional publisher, then, then I can come along and support that. But 
that's just been my experience. I love the creative control, owning my timeline, having all the rights. I get all the royalty for my books. I don't have to share that with anyone. And like I said, I'm getting fan mail for books that were consistently turned down because they're good. <laughs> awesome. One of the things you said there that I want to uh, don't want to skip over, you said that some of your clients will ask you to do that for you. What mm-hmm. did you mean? Like, what are they asking you to do, do for them? Yeah. So through my own journey of realizing how hard it is to learn the process of publishing, I decided to help other people do it as well, because I do truly believe that everyone has something of worth to share, both for their own healing, because we talked about the brain, um, but also for the, the healing or hope or inspiration of people that might come across their story. So I started a press called Miramari Ponte Press. It used to be primarily for children's book writers where I do editing. I have a done for you service where they can just give me their manuscript and I get it published for them. I'm not a publisher. Um, Well, I guess I am for myself, but for them. So any work I do with clients, they maintain all of the rights, all of the access to everything, all of their royalty. I just do a flat rate. But because my purpose is to help people overcome the obstacles to getting their story into the world. So that's one way I do it. Another way is handholding. There's people who are like, no, just teach me how to fish. So I've got a program that's like, all right, let's go fishing. I'm going to show you the whole way so you can do this over and over again. And then I also do story coaching for people who might have a variety of platforms for getting story out. I don't think it has to be a book. It can be from the stage. It can be in your business emails. It can be podcast interviews, whatever it is. So I'll help people figure out what stories are their thread and core stories to share. So that Because that brain piece again, how it engages story and it lights up for that. So if we want our message to get out there, we have to embed story. And so I help people do that well so that their message is more impactful. That's super interesting. I, I'm glad you brought up the story coaching because I wanted to get there eventually. So yeah. maybe this is a nice transition. The One of the things that you mentioned is that you help people on podcast interviews. And you know, obviously that's something I do, uh, both as, as a host like I am right now, but also sometimes in your shoes. Yeah. And I'd love to know, just kind of selfishly, like when you start working with someone um, from that from that standpoint, what does that look like? What are some of the first questions you ask? How do you help someone go from, you know, I like to talk on podcast interviews yeah. to I have a concise story that I like to go through every time? Yeah, you know, it it depends. On, okay, so one of my first questions is, what's why are you trying to impact people, and what is it you're trying to impact them with? So usually when they come to that conversation, I already have an idea. Um, one client I'm thinking of in particular is a is a physical therapist. I feel like that's not entirely right. She works with children and um, she's got that one-on-one experience, right? But she's like, okay, if I can create a book that supports families, like parents, to know how to interact with their kids and kids to handle their tantruming better, then I'm impacting more people at once. So she came to me and said, I want to spread the word about my practice, but also this book. And so in that conversation, I would say, why does this matter to you? You know, what is it? Well, man, I just, I love that kids and parents can do life better. Like if parents were more equipped and could share their calm instead of exacerbating the situation by getting all fired up too, like then there's a bond that forms. We have healthier families. There's less people needing me to come in and support behaviorally, you know? And I was like, okay, well, why does that matter to you? And I kind of just keep asking that why, 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 why? And eventually we get to some really deep sometimes almost painful things, right? Like identity things, worth things. Like, because if I know that I'm contributing to the world around me, then then I've done my part and I can die in peace, whatever it might be. Huh. So I really try to dig deep to understand a person's motivation in life. And then as they're telling those stories, 
I'm catching threads, right? And they might revert back to a story from being a kid and having an experience like I did at writing those circus, writing for those circus tickets. I go, that was my moment. But I didn't know until I was kind of pressed for it, right? Or, you know, why is this your favorite book? My favorite book growing up was Stand Back So the Elephant and Going to Sneeze. And unless someone pressed me, like, why was that your favorite book? I don't know. Made me laugh. But the reality was this elephant was a total disaster to everyone around him. And that's what I was afraid of being. And so as I read this story, I got to experience a character that was lovable, created a lot of chaos for everyone around him, and still like stayed alive, right? Was worthy of existing and had a place in the world and could make people laugh. And so that I know is getting a bit long-winded, but I just really dig into those questions to understand deeper motivation, why, and then people will tell stories. They'll begin to kind of dig deep and find it. And then I go, well, that's it. That's the story that you need to tell. That was your pivotal moment. And then tying that into now, like what was the change before and after? Why now? What happened? And usually there's something that, that, sparked someone to make a change now to impact people, right? So like it wasn't, the motivation wasn't strong enough until something happened. So I'm looking for that story too. And then I help people just dig that into the, the content they're giving. So this woman in particular, their book is Mission Control. And, um, oh, where am I going with that? Mission Control. So she had this experience real young of seeing how she could be impacted and how she could impact others. And now as she's older, she's saying, okay, how can I continue to do that as an adult for kids like me? How can I be to kids like like I was then? And I get her to tie those into her story when she's sharing, hey, parents, this is how to help your child in a tantrum. Mm -hmm. And I care about this because when I was a kid, right, and we can tie in the data with the, the story. If I didn't know any better, I'd say that you're using some of your clinical skills to help people solve their storytelling skills or help develop their uh, storytelling skills. Like the, the approach you just kind of outlined is similar to the way that I've experienced in my life, like clinicians helping you diagnose something, whether it's psychological yeah. or physical. Um, do you make that in connection intentionally? Do you think I'm off base? What, what do you think there? No, you're spot on. And I think it's like <laughs> outside looking in going, something that's just really unique and fun about me. That's a funny sentence. But but having had so much of that life experience, but also that clinical understanding, I can't be only one or the other. So there's always a level of awareness like, oh, I'm slipping into clinical. And sometimes I'll say that, okay, I'm gonna get clinical for a minute. And then other times I just, I'm lit up by the story element. But I think just my understanding and experience is so intertwined. Um, and then the more I learn, the more it lights me up. So for example, what you just said, um, you know, when we think of therapy and clinical work, and especially when it's dealing with hard things we've experienced, traditionally for generations, we've treated it with talk therapy, right? Like we go in, we talk about our hard things, they talk about our hard things. The thing is, nothing really changes. I mean, you might gain some self-awareness, you might gain some new strategies to try, but as far as like the unprocessed trauma, it remains stuck. The reason is they're in two totally different parts of the brain. Like our unprocessed trauma is in our brainstem, which is very sensory. And the talking function, making meaning of language and being cognitive is our prefrontal cortex up in the front. They're totally not, not connected in the way that we would hope if we're going to treat things with talk therapy. And so when you said, is it intentional? You know, originally, no, it just was part of who I am. But the more I learn, the more I realize how much those just work really supportive. So any sensory activity that you can do uncensored, uninhibited, 
unscripted begins to touch the unprocessed trauma that's in our sensory brain. That's how we get to it and that's how we move it and how we begin to process it. And so writing is one of those opportunities to do that expressive art, especially if we're not scripting or censoring ourselves, right? If that first draft of whatever we're trying to say, we just say it, we're doing a lot of work with unprocessed traumatic events um, that we're not going to do just talking it out with a therapist. And so, you know, that's where now it becomes intentional. Now I'm saying, gosh, the more I learned about the brain, the more I realized the storytelling thing is legit and really serves people in a much bigger way than I even thought. It's been serving me in a way much bigger than I thought. And so how can I bring that awareness now into my work with people? So there is there is an overlap. And I try to be clear when it happens. I'm not coming at it as a therapist, but just someone who's trauma-informed and has an experience to say, hey, let's take this journey to a new level and provide some real healing along the way. Very interesting. And this may be related. It may not be. I'm, I'm not sure. But I, I noticed one of the things that you're talking about a lot on Instagram right now is your It's Not Writer's Block yeah. series. Can you tell me a little bit about, about what that is and if those two are related at all? I think I see a thread there, but I may be making it up. <laughs> Look at you. I love your connections. I also geek out on personality wiring and levels of self-awareness. I'm like, hmm, that's so good connection making. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that just kind of, again... This is more me making connections to and recognizing patterns and out of the blue just saying, you know what, I'm going to do this mini series because I have this conversation a lot. I find many people come to me or to the world and say, I just have writer's block. I don't. So therefore, whatever, like, what is it? 80 percent of the Western world wants to write a book and one to two percent of them do. And I am venturing to guess that most of those other people will blame it on time or, you know, writer's block. And the thing is like, what we call writer's block is so many other things. We, we're mislabeling it. And so that mini series is kind of debunking the things that we call writer's block. And there is some brain science in some of it, maybe a lot of it. There's also some mindset stuff. So for example, uh, what we might call writer's block is really the work of healing with our story. So that's one of the, the posts that I have there is, you know, when we're trying to share our story, but we haven't done enough work making peace with it ourselves, and it's in that sensory part of our brain unprocessed, then that cognitive work we're trying to do of like getting the story out that we want to impact people is disconnected. So we have to be able to first just brain dump that story, not care what aunt whoever or ex whoever or, you know, is going to think about what we're saying and just allow our brains to put the fullness of the truth out there. And then once we've done that, we can do our work to make it palatable for the audience. But most people aren't thinking in that way. They're just going, nope, this book is going to be published the way I'm writing it today, or this message is going to be presented from the stage the way I'm writing it today. I have to censor it right now. And then they get stuck and they don't know what to say. And they go, oh, I have writer's block. When no, it's just that you haven't given yourself permission to like tell your true story. That's one example. There's like 10 of them. I'm going to turn this into a book just to continue to support people. Um, but there's a lot of elements of, of putting story out there that gets in our way and becomes an obstacle. And we just kind of casually call it writer's block and give up, which if I can help you realize what it really is and you can overcome that and get your story out, then, then I can die satisfied that I've done my part in the world. There were so many moments in that story that I wanted to jump in and ask you a question, but I know we have like a 10 second delay on like our, our feeds to each other. So I wasn't <laughs> sure what would happen if I did that. But it sounds like what you're describing it's, it sounds like what you're describing is um, 
you know, what writer's block is for a lot of people is an insecurity of putting out anything less than the, the highest pro- possible thing that they're able to put out rather than being okay creating a rough draft that only they see and then fine-tuning it. Am I summarizing that accurately? Yeah, that is a, that is a huge chunk of people. And when I talked about personality wiring either, that's like a super, like a subgroup of people too whose focus is perfectionism. Right. I cannot put anything out there that's going to represent me or potentially cause harm, which we should be mindful of. Um, and so perfect is is better than than done. Therefore, like every artist, um, it's never perfect. So I never put it out there. So there's definitely a journey with ourselves. Um, there's fears of success, fear of failure. We think of fear of failure, but there's also fear of what if this takes off and I lose control of my life. I'm afraid. So I'm going to call that writer's block because there's a fear that's in the way. Right. We, it's so subconscious, but it's like just below the surface that if, if, if I can touch it for like five minutes, we get to what it is. <laughs> we can we can overcome it. Where does it? I've, I've heard of fear, fear of failure, like you said, but I, I don't think I've ever thought too much about fear of success. How do you help people work through that? Because it almost sounds like it's something where you have to like, well, is this really what you want? Like, you got to figure it out. You know, <laughs> how do you help someone deal with that? Yeah, we, I mean, fear is such a part of our human experience, but it also becomes such an obstacle. Again, if we go back to the brain, it's wired to keep us alive. And so if our brain is perceiving a threat to our survival, which is also identity, it's not just your physical body, but it can be a threat to your identity, the core of who you think you are, then everything gets triggered, shuts off your prefrontal cortex, and you're just you're just left to like fight or flight, right? So, So maybe back like, lots and lots and lots of years ago that kept us safe from lions. But today that same system is is preventing us from things that are actually safe, but our perception of it is, is triggering. So that being said, when it comes to, to telling our stories and acknowledging the fear that comes up, I will cause or I will encourage people to confront that fear and really chase it down. So for the person who comes to me and says, I don't know, I just... I feel, I think I'm afraid of putting it out there and what if it does really, really well and then everyone wants me on their TV shows, but like I work a full-time job that I love. Like I don't wanna leave my job. I just wanna help people with this book. So I'll say, okay, well, let's talk about that. You put your book out there. It hit New York Times bestseller. You get invited to Oprah. What then? Do you have to go? Like what happens if you say no? And so we'll kind of talk through what is that? What it, what does it really look like in that moment of fear? You know, um, no, you can tell Oprah no if you love your job, and you can tell Ellen no, and you can tell all the people no, or you can be really picky and choosy. You can say when you're willing to go and when you're not, and you can still work your full time job that you love. But people, the feeling of the fear is so big, and then again, because our brain doesn't know how to like put fear in the future, it feels it now. So when we're thinking the what ifs, our body is experiencing as if that's today in this moment and we get debilitated and paralyzed and we stop. So I, I just say, you know, usually our fear, if we go to the worst case scenario, still isn't that bad. You know, if we publish a book, let's say, and no one reads it, it just tanks and no one buys it, um, or even it gets some bad reviews, like you're a published author. You, your dream of being published came true and all of the feedback you're getting is lessons for how to do the next one better or how to do this one better. You can always update a book and make it better. You can always relaunch it and have a better marketing plan, right? Like the worst thing is that you learned how to do it better and you're a published author. 
So things like that. We'll chase the fear down and go, is it really that bad? Worst case scenario. And it's usually not. Fascinating stuff. I'm going to go somewhere that sounds like it might be slightly off topic, but I think it'll bring us back here. So the in your first TEDx talk, you you had a portion of the conversation. It actually was kind of foundational to, to most of what you were talking about. But where you, you talked about three different animals that are in our brain. Yeah. Could you explain that concept? Yeah, absolutely. So I picked up these animals from my certification program with trauma and resilience through Star Learning. So I want to make sure to give them credit. They gave me permission to use that in the TEDx talk. But I love naming it because then we don't have to actually know what to call the things in the brain. Like the average person can have a really healthy understanding of how the brain works without like knowing to call it the prefrontal cortex. So um, for those of you listening, that's uh, you are more than your trauma. Or, yeah, more than you are more than your trauma or more than your traumatic experiences. I know the name of my TEDx talks. I do. Um, <laughs> you can search that and I go through it. So you can listen to it over and over. You can also listen to it here. But essentially what it is, is that you've got a meerkat. And we're all familiar with how they kind of stand on their little hills and look around. And, and there's always the one like on alert to let the other ones know if they're about to be eaten by something. And, and, and they all run and hide. So in our brains, our amygdala acts as our meerkat. And again, this is so super simplifying it, but it's enough. So you've got this meerkat that's always on alert for threats to your survival. And again, that's also identity stuff. So like pandemic is a traumatic experience. And all of us are perceiving it in a particular way. Right. Some of us are going, if there's a global pandemic and I can kill people by existing outside of my home and they're like, then I am a bad, bad person. And it begins to strike the identity of a human and they're going to begin to respond from a survival space rather than a very um, cognitive space. Right. Another person might say, I'm in a pandemic I understand that there's contagion and I'm going to do what I can to learn how to minimize that risk. And if someone gets sick because I've been around, um, that's that's what's happening right now. And we're all trying to understand it. And it doesn't make me a bad person. I'm going to learn from it. You know what I mean? And then they're not going to turn that into trauma. So your, your, your meerkat is always trying to determine for you what you have constituted as a threat to your survival. Um, again, identity or actual physical survival. And then it's going to alert two other characters to react. Your prefrontal cortex, we call the owl. And your owl is responsible for prioritizing, goal setting, making meaning of language, delayed gratification, like all the things that we want when we're making an important decision. That's with your owl. And then you've got your tiger in the sensory place. And your tiger is all about like fighting or running. Right. And so so when that meerkat senses danger, he's going to alert the tiger like, hey, get ready. We might need to survive and I'm going to need your brawn. And he's going to say to the owl, like, you should probably go. You're kind of vulnerable and we need you safe. So what that means for your actual brain is that your ability to reason, delay gratification, use language shuts off. And your tiger shows up and your tiger is like irritable, um, doesn't sleep very well if he's agitated, um, might just respond like impulsive. Um, the goal is like safety, create a space of safety again so that he can calm down. The meerkat can say, OK, we're safe. Owl, you can come back. So if you're ever in a situation and you can't find the words that you want to say, you're feeling kind of flustered and, and you're losing your language or your ability to think clearly. You know, a lot of people will judge themselves in that moment. Like, what's wrong with me? 
I'm, <laughs> what's wrong with me? I'm a really articulate person, and yet I'm so frozen here. Well, in those times of freeze, actual freeze, where the tiger cannot fight or flee, that's when our traumatic experiences become unprocessed trauma and they get stuck. If we can do something about the threat we're experiencing, usually that gets processed. Our brain assigns it to a time and a place in history and we can have a memory of it, but move on. When our freeze response has been triggered, it stays stuck, it's not assigned a time and place. And so any kind of association will bring it back to right now. We see that with PTSD especially, right? Like they hear a sound and immediately they're back in whatever that, that event was that that never got processed. So the owl, the tiger, the meerkat, I use these with my kids. You know, where's my shoe? I can't find my shoe, we're gonna be late. And I'm like, watch out, your tiger, your, your, your owl's gonna fly away and your owl is the only one who knows where the shoe is. Let's like, bring it down. Tiger, we're okay. You know, meerkat, this is not an actual threat to survival. Come on, owl, help us out. You know, and I'll use that language <laughs> with anyone because it just gives us the mindset of like, okay, what does it look like? to actually utilize the parts of my brain that I need right now. And if it flies away, like then don't make decisions. We need to actually then do some coping skills to convince our owl, our prefrontal cortex, that it's safe to turn back on. And then we should be able to enter a space of making decisions again. What you just described with your, with your helping your kids find their shoes, it sounds kind of similar, but in more child-friendly vocabulary to how you <laughs> coach, um, how you coach uh, your, your, what were they called? story coaching clients um, yeah. through through the process of dealing with writer's block. Uh, does that is that an accurate connection? That's great. I don't know that I've even made that connection or thought about it in that way, but you're right. It's having a healthy understanding of how we are wired and how we function and then supporting people to use those well with their awareness so that whatever the obstacle is, we can handle it in the best possible way and remove shame at the same time. Right, because I think we, we build shame upon shame when we're not doing the things that we set out to do. We're not you know, hammering nails into the wall like the person next to us because we've been made as a spoon, but we're trying to be a hammer. So I think the more self-awareness we can have, the more like just general awareness about how the brain is designed we have, the better we can then use that awareness for our benefit. But a lot of us are just going through life by default and, and again, like self-judging and others judging a ton just because of a lack of understanding. Wow. Um, so to actually change yeah. su subjects slightly, I'm, I'm curious about this book you wrote called The Abundance yeah. of Less, uh, which you described in the, t in the subtitle as a, uh, a social experiment. Could you tell me a little bit about what that experiment was? Like what, yeah. what were you going for there? Yeah. So a number of years ago, this actually ends up being... Anyway, a number of years ago, uh, <laughs> I was driving along thinking, man, I don't love New Year's resolutions per se, but I do like the idea of, of a challenge or something to focus on in a new year. And I was sort of processing, like, what could that be? And all of a sudden, this, this thought hit me, don't buy anything new for the next year. And I, I, I know everyone has a different faith perspective, but I, I felt like that was like a divine inspiration because I had never even considered that ever in my life. Like it had never had been something I was processing. This thought just hit me like, what if we didn't buy anything new? Is it possible in America with all the excess that's everywhere for a family to live, like keeping really the same kind of quality of life on the excess of Americans? And I, like, I'm not do or die. This is something you'll find in the book. It's not legalistic. It's not judgmental. It's just like, hey, what if 
what if we could do something, even one thing differently or better? Like, what would that look like? And so we did. We decided to see if we could go the whole year, 2010, not buying anything brand new, buying things used or homemaking things ourselves for gifts or whatever, or supporting local artisans. That was an exception, especially if we were traveling and, you know, I just love supporting people. And so what if instead of franchises, it was another human that we were doing something for or with. And so I'm happy to tell you that America does have enough excess that you can live on it. Now, this wasn't about mooching, right? It was about community. It was about sharing and 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 taking what you need from people who didn't need it and giving what you didn't need to people who could use it. And it just it brought relationships into my life that I didn't expect with total strangers. Like even if it was just for a season or briefly, like stories were shared. You know, this woman had all this paper that she didn't need that she was giving to me. And, and so I went to her little shop. It must was it a thrift store? I don't, it was a really unique kind of eclectic shop. And she just was like, here's this paper. And then it was the printer paper back then that had the reams on the side that like went through the really old school, you know, printer. And so I just was going to use it for art or whatever. But then someone else ended up saying they needed that kind of paper. So I was able to pass that on and swap it. For, I mean, it was just, it was just the coolest thing. And then while I would be in the space with a person, you know, people do, they begin to share some of their life or their story or the connections that you have. So we didn't do it perfectly. There were times that I talk about where we, we goofed. Like my son was really sick one day and it was kind of my fault because I hadn't been watching him very closely at my daughter's birthday party and he had eaten all the gummy bears and then was like throwing them up. And I had all this mama guilt. And so <laughs> I went to get him like seven up and crackers and I came home also with like a woody Toy Story toy because of my guilt. <laughs> and so I write about that. Like, what does it look like when you fail? And what do you learn from that? And what is failure? And and how can we just get up again and and try the next day to, to be better more conscientious consumers. Um, ironically, this was what I was going to say at the beginning. At the end of that year, I was like, okay, what do we do next? And again, this thought hit me like, what if we got rid of half of our stuff? Okay, I love less stuff. Like, I don't like having a lot of it. I, that's just part of I think I'm pretty nomadic. And so the idea of like trying to live the life I like, just stuff bogs down. So that wasn't terribly unusual, but it ended up by the end of that year that we moved to Germany and got rid of like 95% of our stuff. So again, I thought that was like divine preparation for how much I was actually going to get rid of in order to make that move across the world. Um, but yeah, that's that's the book. And we had a lot of fun. And now I'm just encouraging people to think conscientiously about how they live. I, I love that whole get rid of all your stuff thing. I did that recently. And I do buy new things sometimes. Oh, uh. <laughs> still, now. <laughs> so uh, were there any parts of this social experiment that were really challenging for you? Because it, it sounds like it was an overwhelmingly positive thing and you ended up going more into it after the experiment by getting rid of half your stuff. Um, yeah. What parts of it were challenging? Waiting. Waiting was challenging because I couldn't just run to Walmart in my pajamas and grab what I wanted. I had to... Get, and this was 2010, so we didn't have Facebook Marketplace. We didn't have, we had Craigslist, and we had something called Yahoo Groups. And they were, you know, what they were. <laughs> Little ads posted places. So it's way easier today. But then Facebook was brand new. Only a few people were allowed into it. I started what I think was probably the first buy and sell group on Facebook because there were no others. And I just was like, I need to make this easier for myself. And so I just started a regular group. Um, and then other people 
took that idea and said, oh, what did you do? I want to start one in my area. So I don't, you know, I don't have to ask Facebook, like, do you know who the first person was? But I was definitely up there. Um, but it, so I'm doing this in a time where there's just, there's, you had to just go to a thrift store or like post an ad on Craigslist. And so the waiting was so hard, so good too, right? There's a, there's a purpose for waiting. And I think as Americans or Western culture, especially like we're really uncomfortable with waiting. Um, but there was a lot of benefit to it, but that was so hard because I'm like, just get things done. The other piece ties in probably to more my wiring, which was people judging me or misunderstanding it. And I just want everyone to like me and understand me correctly, basically. So so people just saying, wow, this sounds a lot like you trying to take advantage of others or um, like a mooching kind of mentality. And it just, that was not my purpose. And it creates in me this sense, like, I just want to go defend myself everywhere so they can all understand the true intention. And I can't live, I can't live like that with anything I do, right? So I've had to learn how to let people be responsible for their own perceptions and to just live by mine and, and benefit the people that I can learn from mistakes along the way. Um, but that was a really challenging piece for me was, was the perceptions of a few people, they were the minority, but just knowing that anyone out there would call me, um, yeah, like I'm taking advantage of, of others was really painful because that's not a perception I want of who I am. I could see that being super challenging. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was at the end of this experiment, you know, you got yeah. rid of half your stuff and you know, went nomad. Uh, I would love to hear a little bit about what that journey was like with a family because I'm I'm also a nomad living. That's why our Wi-Fi is. That's why our connection's terrible right now because I'm calling you from my Airbnb in uh, oh. Mexico. But the uh, I'd love to hear what that experience was like with a family. Was that challenging? Yeah, great question. So we moved to a part of Germany to work at a school that serves humanitarian aid workers serving um, Africa, the Middle East. Eastern Europe and Asia. And so there was a rootedness in that we had a place to be, but we were in a part of Germany that was 20 minutes from the Swiss border with Basel, 20 minutes from the French border and the Alsace. And I had like 11 countries within four hours of me that I could go visit. And I'm Californian, so four, a four hour drive is like how you get to any anywhere. <laughs> so, like, so that wasn't such a thing for me. Um, so I, it was nine years of living in this space where I had really easy access to lots of other countries. And then there's EasyJet. So whatever I couldn't drive to in four hours, like I could fly to in an hour or two. So what was nice about it was that family members who felt like they needed to be more homebody or rooted could, and I could go somewhere for the weekend. And then other times I would say, nope, I love my life experience with you. You're coming. I will say that my kids will be happy if they never have to see another castle again. Um, <laughs> and then there's elements like we went to the, you know, Paris and the Eiffel Tower. I mean, I love Paris and the Eiffel Tower sparkles on the hour um, in the evening, especially. And so I'd be like, kids, it's sparkling. And they're like chasing a squirrel down the park, you know, or a lizard. I'm like, oh my gosh. So when kids are raised in these places, it becomes a backdrop, but for me, it's always a fairy tale. <laughs> and um, yeah, actually now all of them would like to just stay in one place forever and ever and ever. And so I'm like, but God, but you gave them to me as their mamas. <laughs> so at this point, I still take them on trips with me, um, but I also want to honor their 
lives. <laughs> I should say too that in um, December we had a, a very abrupt departure from Germany that really wasn't our choice, and they had we had four weeks notice, and so they were very quickly ripped out from school, friendships, home. Like they were three and four when we moved there, and and it was because of a family family stuff that was really really um, challenging, and that our company there didn't feel they could support. And so, so that could be too while they're just super homebody now is they're just, they're like their lives have unraveled and they're kind of piecing it back together. All that to say, I am going to fully enjoy the time that I have left with them and still make them do things sometimes for, <laughs> for the experience and my pleasure of it. But I'm also really looking forward to that day when they can, you know, be at home in their college dorm and I can be doing what you're doing. Like I just want to hop from place to place and and just live my life experiencing culture and language and Puerto Vallarta, like, <sighs> that's nice. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it too, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so to, com- to completely change subjects, uh, mm-hmm. just because this is another thing that I wanted to make sure we got to, one of the books that you wrote um, is called While We Slept. And this is one of the things we initially yeah. spoke about while... Um, when we first met. First of all, I would, I would appreciate it if you could kind of explain what the premise of that book is, because I don't want to get it wrong. Um, and then, you know, I have a sense from the beginnings of this conversation that, you know, you wrote part of this as a way mm-hmm. to process, you know, what had happened in yeah. your life. And then, but I'd also like to know, did, was there another hope that you had mm-hmm. for the book in terms of impact yeah. on others? Yeah, those are great. Yeah, so the book is While We Slept, Finding Hope and Healing After Homicide. It just got a medal, actually. I didn't know books could get medals, but it just got a medal from Illumination Awards. That was fun. Um, The premise of the story, excuse me, is that four days before my wedding anniversary, while we were living with my in-laws who were transitioning from life in America to Colombia, where my father-in-law was from, um we woke up to the murder of my mother-in-law by my father-in-law and we were just down the hall. Like it was a long hall and there was a mother-in-law suite on one side of it. So we couldn't necessarily hear, but we were, we were just sleeping and he came and woke us up and let us know that she was hurt. That was it. Like kind of calm. We were leaving that day for 10 days um, to El Salvador. And so the way he came in, my thought was like, we'll just get her a Band-Aid. Like, I'm going to get up in a minute. It just didn't seem urgent. Um, and then the phone rang, and it was the ambulance, and they were already at the door. He had called them. Um, so he, he has no memory of the event. He has these little fragments of memories around it. He remembers finding her, um, but not actually causing her death. And so he was totally out of it. But he did call them. He did wake us up, but still, like cognitively, was not not urgent like it was. And um, he was seventy two at the time, and she was sixty seven. So yeah, we just literally woke up to the ambulance and the police and my mother in law like f- freshly killed, and my father in law totally out of sorts, but like covered in head to toe um, with evidence. I don't I want to get too graphic for your audience here in case there's a trigger trigger warning, but um, yeah, and that just started me journaling. Like I, I was trying to make sense of all of this, um, experiencing my own shock. Like I almost had an awareness that I was in, again, that clinical piece, like in the back of my head, 
knew what to call the grief process. Like there's going to be denial and anger and bargain. You know, I was just like, I could label everything, but then I was experiencing it so firsthand. Um, also as the in-law, it was a really unique experience. There were a number of situations where I wasn't recognized as a victim because I wasn't her blood child, even though I was in the house. And then her blood, another of her blood children who wasn't in the home was awarded certain benefits and recognition because she was a blood child, even though she was states away when it happened. And absolutely like she, she should be. But it was interesting to walk through that both from a systems level, but also just other grieving people. Like at the memorial service, people would come up to my then husband and um, his sibling and express all these condolences and then walk right past me. And I had this internal struggle with like, absolutely, they deserve all those condolences. But like, what do I do with my grief? What do I do with my grief? Like, is there space for it in someone else's hug? You know, is it recognizable anywhere? So to your point, yeah, I spent a number of years just journaling. It took three years for that entire process to finally sort of end legally. And then just a new journey, a new version of life. Like he was in a psychiatric prison um, for support for a very long time. So at some point, again, I thought, gosh, what if this story could help someone? And some of that came from the fact that we had lots of journalists in our home and they would often say, how are you doing okay? Like I just interviewed a guy whose woman was, or wife was gunned down. And after my interview, he killed himself. And you guys are okay. You know, how are you okay? And it was just kind of, we were grieving. We weren't okay, but there was something different about how we were navigating the situation that it was, it was obvious to people. So I just thought, well, maybe if I put our story out there, they'll figure out what that was. <laughs> like if our faith was a huge piece of it, right? Like I had something bigger than me to lean into and to, to rely on for a source of comfort and understanding when I didn't have any, like, well, at least, you know, even if I don't know all the details, um, yeah. And then when it came to actually publishing it, that was really hard because it's my story, but it's not just my story. Like it's my father-in-law's story and I love him. And there's been a lot of redemption and healing there. And how do I honor him and dignify him while telling this really difficult story? And what we found was that if you Googled his name, only these two news articles would come up that talked about how he was a crazy man who'd killed his wife. And I just thought, what if this story could bring a wholeness to the experience? And even though it still has to tell the hard part of like, this did happen, you know, he was diagnosed with two forms of dementia. One of those was stroke induced. Was he in a stroke that put him in a psychotic blackout? You know, what is it like to live your life being told that you did something this tragic that you have no memory of? Like he doesn't need more condemnation and judgment, he needs compassion and care, right? Like there's like a wisdom that goes along with what that care looks like. But that was sort of the final straw for me in choosing to publish it again with my then husband because um, yeah, I wanted to impact people. The, the, the subtitle being hope and healing after homicide. Like if I, I did have one reader say to me that she had been depressed in bed for a very long time and was contemplating taking her own life. And my book came across her and she, she wrote to me and said, I decided if you could overcome that, I could get out of bed today and get dressed. I could get dressed today. And I didn't even know that I could impact that kind of person, but I hoped that if anyone could hear our story and say, maybe I can do something hard today, that they would be able to do it. 
and simultaneously to bring a fullness of the story for my father-in-law with more understanding. I talk a lot about understanding so that there could be a level of dignity awarded to him in, in his own tragedy too. So I published it. That gave me chills. Um, in your TED talk about this, your first, your first uh, of your TEDx talks, you open up that story in a very unique way. You took yourself out of it. You started by describing really in a, in an almost controversial way. You said, you know, yeah. what if I told you that a, a black man killed his white wife or something like that, right? Yeah. And then you mm -hmm. kind of framed it in the context of him being elderly and having a mental condition. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why did you choose to, to frame that story that way? Yeah. You know, this was in November during the election. It was in DC. I was actually there when the election was called um, with Trump and Biden. And, and my presentation was given in a room full of beautiful, intellectual African-American women. I think there was one other white face in the room. And I was so honored and privileged to be even among them that they would have heard something in my story to include in their platform. And there was a lot of racial tension at that time too, right? And there, and there still is, even recently the news again, such horrible, tragic things. And I, I started it that way in part to trigger people, but only briefly, right? Like I didn't leave them there very long, but to highlight how quickly we are to judge a situation with limited information. And I, I am, I am a casualty of that too, right? Both a casualty and a, whatever the opposite, like the, um, a wrongdoer of that, where we take in information and our brain immediately assigns meaning to it. And then we respond from that. And so much of the tension that I see happening in the world, racially or otherwise, like even just wear a mask or don't wear a mask, get vaccinated or don't get vaccinated. Like it's from these perceptions that we hold and the meaning we assign to them. And then, and then, and then the position from which we feel we have to act that out on another human. Also, the coordinator of that event loved it. And again, she was, she's like hardcore DC, beautiful, again, African-American woman, um, very much an advocate. And she said, like, when you first said that, I was like, whoa, I know where she's going. You know, like there's this whole thing like, oh, I see this white face is going to talk about a black man who murdered a white woman. And then, and then I took her on a ride and she was like, I loved that ride. I want that for the audience too. And so my hope was in starting that way, I could make them emotionally feel from the beginning exactly what she experienced. The like, oh, I know where this is going and I'm already like triggered to respond. And then I immediately follow up with like your perception and your brain was already assigning meaning to that. Now, what if I fill it in with context? Does it change your perception? And it does, it does change it. And so what do we do with that awareness? Again, like what do we do with our awareness that our first bits of information are, are not always the full information? And how do we then show up in the world as better humans, slowing down to acknowledge that I probably don't have everything I need um, and that the meaning I assign to things can become unprocessed trauma, right? I kind of alluded to that earlier too, that, that the same person can go through this, two people can go through the same experience and for one, it becomes unprocessed trauma. And for the other, it doesn't. And it's so much about the meaning that we assign to things and how we decide that defines us. So long answer to that. I apologize. But it it, it was really powerful. Um, 
And I hope that everyone <laughs> got beyond the trigger and didn't stop watching at that point now that it's a video. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought it was an incredibly effective tool. Definitely, definitely caught attention. And you did take it somewhere meaningful and impactful from there. Okay. Um, I noticed that you did a similar thing, different but similar. And I would assume for different reasons, but I'm wondering if maybe there's some kind of storytelling device at play here that you did in your other TEDx talk where you start by telling that story of you entering, you know, the... The, uh, the contest to win the, the trip to the circus for your family, you also kind of took yourself out of the story. And you're like, there once was a girl, you know, and that girl, you know, later on, spoiler alert, you find out was you. Um, <laughs> do you do that intentionally when architecting a story? Do you always do that? Uh, I'd, I'd love to know if there was any intentionality there. Yeah, that's so great. No one's ever called that out. And you're right, I do it in both talks. Um, I love a good surprise or plot twist or some, a surprise. And I think, maybe I said that already, but I think that the brain, again, is looking for that. So when, when you begin to receive story, again, audibly reading it, whatever, your brain actually releases endorphins and dopamine to pique your curiosity to pay attention. And especially when it's good story, right? When it's got the tension, the obstacles, the overcoming, all those things. So yes and no, it's intentional. No in that... I think it's such an ingrained part of me as a storyteller to want to captivate and to to want to delight in some ways my audience with a good story. But simultaneously, um, yes, in that I bring a conscientiousness to the storytelling. And I think I'm thinking through what is that actually either plot wise or or plot twist wise that will keep their attention. And that's the thing I wanna do is I wanna keep the attention so that what I'm saying, when I'm giving clinical statistics, those are cushioned within story so that it, it remains as part of, of the experience. So I guess I answer that yes and no. Um, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So I asked that just because it sprung to my mind, but the where I really wanted yeah. to go from from that last thing you were mentioning was that there was uh, a point in that in that TED talk where you are discussing the you know, the, the book we were just discussing um, while we slept, um, where you talk about how you and your husband uh, both respond to to the to the same situation yeah. differently, um, and I'd like to know kind of from your perspective as a someone who lived that in that situation and b as a clinician, yeah. why do some certain people have different levels of, I guess we'll call it resilience yeah. or different responses? Is there, is there a broad study of that or is it all just kind of too many variables to even begin to answer? There are a lot of variables, but I think we can understand some of them. And a lot of it is resolved in, in self-understanding and healthy personal work, whether that's in a therapeutic office or just our own journey in some capacity to know ourselves better. I didn't have awareness around how much I wanted to not be a burden in my family and how much I took on a responsibility from the age of four and three and five to be as light as possible within my household without anyone having taught me that. I didn't have awareness around that really until the last like two or three years, recognizing the impact that it had had on my relationship. So then, so then that put me in some abusive situations 
as well of being a codependent saying that if if my responsibility is to keep you happy and you are happy, then that makes me worthy of love in some way. And when you're not happy, then it's my failing. It's my shortcoming or weakness or defect in me. No one had to teach me that. I just operated from that for a long time, right? But seeing some patterns, doing some work around understanding how I've been designed and wired, whether that's through Myers-Briggs or Enneagram or Strength Finders, there's all these tools that I began to sort of look at and say, where do I fit in this world? Is there a place of belonging for me? Because believing that there's not is not serving me. It's put me in harm's way. It's put my whole family, like my children in harm's way. Um, it's enabled abuse because I was doing this dance. I'm, I'm giving you the personal example of of how then that opened up for me a recognition around why I might perceive something as a threat to my identity that someone else wouldn't, right? So someone deciding that me doing a year of not buying anything new as entitled or or taking advantage of people, there's a meaning in me around my identity that's attached to that. And if someone were to really attack me from it and I'm not aware, I'm going to perceive that as as potentially a traumatic experience because it's attacking my identity. And then I'm going to respond from fight or flight and that never makes anything better, right? Whereas someone else who's got some really good identity work or that isn't like one of their stories isn't going to be phased at all by someone who says that. They're just going to be like, no, you're wrong. And they're going to move on with the experiment. Um, So there's a level for each of us of having picked up stories throughout our lives, narratives that we have owned that aren't helpful or supportive, but that speak to our identity. And so depending on what story you're bringing to a traumatic experience will determine whether that becomes unprocessed trauma, traumatic, or not at all. So that's the broadness of it. You know, that's why I say there's lots of variables in there about what those stories might be for a person. Um, Trying to think of an example around perspective. I mean, I've given a few already. Um, the story that's coming to mind doesn't totally describe this, but it's still an example of perspective that after my mother-in-law died and we were able to get um, some life insurance money and to sell the house that we had been in, we bought a vehicle to fit all of the kids we were fostering because we had outgrown our car. And we were able to purchase a new house or put a down payment on a new house to fit all the kids that we were fostering and to finally move out of the house of the murder. We had to live there for three years where she was killed. Someone one day said to me, man, I wish I could go buy a new car and a new house. And my thought internally was like, you have no idea what that cost me. No idea what that cost me, right? Like that I would have my mother-in-law back in a heartbeat and return the car in the house, like a grandmother for my children. And it just showed me again how perspective, this isn't tying to traumatic experiences, but how perspective changes everything. And it has slowed me down in judging other people or envying what they have because I don't know what that costs them either, right, from the external piece of it. So that is why we can step into a situation. We're always bringing stories to it, limited information, and and then acting on that information. If we can slow down, we can begin to ask ourselves, what is the story here? What is it I'm telling myself about this moment that is, and is it true or is it not true? And then we can determine how we're going to act in a healthier way versus just having our tiger like jump in and our owl take off. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
Marcy, there are so many more questions I want to ask you. And I feel like I wrote down all these subjects that I wanted to ask you about, and we got through about half of them. Um, so we'll have to do this again. Thank you so okay. much for your time today. This has been personally yes. enlightening. I feel like I gained so much from this, and I hope other listeners do as well. Um, what, what's next for you? What are you doing? Where can people connect with your, your current projects? Where should I direct people? Yeah, so my website, based on my name, marcypusey.com, houses everything. You can get to my press from there if you've heard that you want help getting story through book format. Um, my story coaching is there too, but so are the TEDx Talks. You can watch them there linked from my site. I also will give you a link that we'll post below for a free gift for your audience to access a PDF that talks about storytelling and healing. Um, a guide for that. So for anyone who wants to sort of dip their toes in there and start thinking through that process for any of the stories in their own life, that is something I love to support people with. And so that's a free gift for them. Um, and then upcoming, I'm working on a course that will be out maybe, yeah, it'll be out soon on um, storytelling with purpose. And so I'm going to integrate that understanding of the brain and how it heals how it processes traumatic experiences with the importance of getting our messages out into the world and impacting others. Um, and then, like I said, I'm working on this book on writer's block to debunk <laughs> or clarify, relabel the things that we call writer's block. I'm always creating. So if you just stay connected on marcypc.com, um, you'll see what's happening. And there's a newsletter box that will pop up with a free gift as well if you want to stay updated. Um, through email, that's one way. I rarely send emails so that you won't be inundated. And then Instagram, that's probably where I'm the most active and that's where that mini series is happening and my DMs are open. So you can hang out with me there and follow up that way too. Awesome, thank you so much. And I would like to give a personal recommendation for Marcy's Instagram. It's an awesome account. It's not like any other account you follow. She really gives very thoughtful um thought-provoking uh, content that I think you guys will really like uh, if you enjoyed this conversation. Marcy, thank you again, uh, and I can't wait to do it again next time. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, As we close out, we'll just say I take it uh, to heart when someone entrusts me with their audience. I know that you care very deeply for them and are very protective of them, and so to invite me into the space to to, to be part of their experience. Again, I don't take that lightly. So thank you very much for entrusting them with me and I appreciate you and what you're doing. Absolutely. Till next time. Bye.